0: C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Well, is the answer clear, or are you confused? Maybe I should ask, do you remember the question? Let's start with the problem. If you will remember, way back in Romans chapter 8, Paul said that nothing could separate us from the love of God. Nothing could change God's love. Nothing could separate us from that love. Nothing could possibly prevent God's program from being fulfilled. Now, that immediately brought up a problem. It is the problem that we've been dealing with for some time now. I've chosen to call it the Jewish problem. Simply stated, the problem is this. At the end of Romans 8, Paul promises us that nothing can separate us from the love of God or change God's program for us. But then God made promises to the Jews in the Old Testament, and apparently those promises are not being fulfilled in them. So here's the problem. If God cannot fulfill his promises to the Jews, then pray tell, what does that have to say about him being able to fulfill his promise to us? Keep in mind that this has to do with nothing less than our eternal destiny and security. So this is indeed a problem. Paul introduces the problem in the first part of Romans chapter 9 and takes three chapters to discuss it. We have now gone through all of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, and most of chapter 11. So I ask, is the answer to this Jewish question clear, or are you still confused? What is the answer? And frankly, it can get tough. In chapter 9, Paul said that God was sovereign And reserve the right to select or reject anyone he so chose. That he would have mercy on whom he would have mercy, and he would harden who he would harden. Is that the answer to this problem? That God is sovereign? Does that imply that man doesn't have any choice in the matter? And that takes us to the latter part of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10 where Paul gives a seemingly second answer to this problem. And that second answer is this. The reason that Israel isn't saved is because they chose not to be. Wow! What does that have to say about the sovereignty of God? Does that mean God's program will, after all, not be fulfilled? And then you get to chapter 11. And it really gets interesting, because in chapter 11, Paul begins by asking, well, then has God cast away his people? He emphatically denies that, and yet he teaches in the early part of this chapter that God will harden whom he will harden, and yet at the same time, a remnant will be saved, and ultimately all Israel will be saved got it I mean is the answer clear or are you still confused I'm telling you this is some of the most complicated reasoning in all of the Bible perhaps I should use the word complex he starts out talking about God's sovereignty in chapter 9 man's seemingly free will in chapter 10 and the fact that God will ultimately fulfill his program in chapter 11. Now, how do you answer the basic problem that he introduced way back at the end of chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9? Well, let me suggest that he brings all of this together and gives us the final ultimate answer in the last paragraph of Romans chapter 11. So, will you turn with me? to Romans chapter 11, where I'm going to begin reading with verse 25 to see the ultimate solution to this so-called Jewish problem. Here's what Paul says. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I have taken away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches. Both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Frankly, this passage, though it ties together a number of the threads of the last three chapters, and in a sense is simple, at the same time can itself be a bit complex. Let me begin by suggesting that in verses 25 through 27, Paul simply teaches that Israel is temporarily and partially hardened, but that ultimately all Israel will be saved. Let me repeat that. That statement summarizes verses 25 through 27 of chapter 11, and to a great degree summarizes the three chapters of Romans 9 through 11. The statement is this. Israel is temporarily, partially hardened, but ultimately all Israel will be saved. Now let's begin by showing you how I came to that conclusion. Paul begins verse 25. For I desire, brethren, that you should not be ignorant of this mystery. When Paul says, I desire that you should not be ignorant, that is simply a way that he uses to say what I'm about to tell you is important. I don't want you to be ignorant. He goes on to say, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. I don't want you to be ignorant because if you are ignorant of the truth, then you will be wise in what you think is the truth. And as he said earlier in the verses just prior to this statement, that could lead to pride and haughtiness and uh, all kinds of evil wickedness. So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, and I don't want you to be wise in your own opinion. And then he makes the statement, Hardening, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. And he quotes several passages to prove that. Notice these various elements. We need to look at each one individually. Number one, all Israel, he says, is hardened. Then he says, it is in part, and ultimately, I should say, all Israel will be saved. Three parts to this. Number one, there is partial hardening. Number two, it is temporary. Number three, but all Israel will be saved. That's those three elements I want us to look at. First, he says, hardening in part has happened to Israel. The hardening is only partial. Now, what that means is that not the whole nation has been hardened. Not the whole nation has been blinded. Not the whole nation has been cut off. To use his uh, illustration of the branches being cut off the tree. Matter of fact, in this very chapter, he talks about the fact that he, a Jew, has come to know Christ. Early in the chapter, he talked about the remnant that would be saved. And in the early verses of this chapter, he anticipates other Jews coming to a knowledge of Christ. So one of the things he says in conclusion is that this hardening, this rejection of the Messiah by Israel is only in part. There are Jews since the coming of Christ who have turned to Christ. Paul himself is an illustration as well as a host of others. Let me just pause here to say that that makes Jewish evangelism possible in our day. If the hardening were total, not just partial, then no Jew could be or would be saved. But the fact that the hardening is partial makes Jewish evangelism possible. The second thing that he says, the second part of this, is that it is temporary. Notice he says at the end of verse 25, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, what does he mean by that? What is the fullness of the Gentiles? Apparently, there is this group of Gentiles that in God's program will come to Christ, and this partial hardening of Israel will go on until that full number of Gentiles has been saved. When will that be? Well, I'm going to suggest that it will go through the tribulation period because in Revelation chapter 7, we are told that 144,000 Jews will be saved, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. So that tells me that Jews will be saved even up until and after the rapture. So the fullness of the Gentiles is a phrase that um, goes into the tribulation period. Now he says in this passage that this partial hardening is temporary. It's only going to take place until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then he says, finally, Verse 26, so all Israel will be saved. Their hardening, their rejection is partial, it is temporary, but ultimately all Israel is going to be saved. Now what does he mean by all Israel? (laughs) That little phrase has been kicked around by Bible teachers and theologians for centuries no less than John Calvin, came to that little phrase and said, it included all the Jews and all the Gentiles that would be saved. He did that based on a verse in Galatians 6 where some interpret Israel to mean the church. But that cannot possibly be the interpretation. For in verse 25 he clearly is making a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles, where he says, hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So in verse 25, he is clearly making a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles, and that means that in verse 26, Israel cannot include the Gentiles. That's a very important little observation. That means, folks, but verse 26 is talking about the nation of Israel. I mean the Jews who by physical descendant, descendancy is, are related to Abraham. The nation of Israel, the physical, literal Jews, will be saved. That's what this verse is saying. It is saying all Israel will be saved. And in order to support that, He quotes Isaiah 59, and he alludes to Isaiah 27. He says, The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away all ungodliness from Jacob. That is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 and 21, to prove that all Israel will be saved. The Messiah is going to come out of Zion, here called the Deliverer, and he's going to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Then, He paraphrases, so to speak, Isaiah 27, verse 9, which is in verse 27 of this chapter. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 9, indicates that God will take away the sin of Israel, and Paul says that is going to happen at a future time from his day. Now, when is this going to take place? Verse 26 says, quoting Isaiah, The Deliverer will come out of Zion. It didn't happen at the first coming of Christ, so it must be that it will happen at the second coming of Christ. So that this passage is telling us that all Israel will be saved when Christ returns. The book of Zechariah says they're going to look on him whom they have pierced. They will recognize the Messiah and Israel as a nation will turn to Christ. I do not think that necessarily means that every individual Jew within the nation will turn to Christ, just as it did not mean that every individual Jew within the nation rejected Christ. But as a unit, as a nation, they will, at the second coming of Christ, recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So, this portion of Romans 11 is teaching us that Israel rejected the Messiah. But that rejection is only partial. Not everybody did it. It is only temporary, and ultimately, they will all be saved. Once, many years ago, a little boy in the hospital in London was expecting a visit from King George V. When the king arrived, the little boy didn't recognize him because he didn't have on his crown. When Jesus Christ came, the nation of Israel didn't recognize him. Instead of having on his royal robes as they expected or some kind of a golden crown worthy of a king, He had on a crown of thorns. And instead of royal robes, he had on clothes of suffering. And they didn't realize he was here. That's the Jewish problem. That's the Jewish problem. Then does that mean that God won't fulfill those promises he made to Israel? And if God wasn't faithful to those promises he made to Israel, and what does that have to say about all those promises he made to us? Like, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Like, we are guaranteed glory. But you see, this is the answer. No, no. That little boy didn't recognize King George V when he came into the hospital at first because he didn't have on his crown. But eventually the king identified himself And the little boy knew who he was in a very similar fashion. The Jews, when Jesus came, did not recognize him, but Paul says that was only partial. It didn't extend to every individual in the nation. It was only temporary because one day Israel will recognize their Messiah. Israel as a nation will be saved. And the point of all of this is that God will be faithful to His promises. The promises He made to the nation back in Genesis will be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So God, who is sovereign, and Israel, who exercised their choice not to recognize the Messiah, will all somehow work together Ultimately, God will be sovereign, God will be faithful, God will be just, and all Israel will be saved. Now, that gives us great comfort in that we have the assurance that God will be faithful to the promises He has made to us. That's the solution, and that's the answer to this so-called Jewish problem, as I've chosen to call it. Now, having said all of that, in this passage, Paul turns his attention to Gentiles. In verses 28 to 32, he says to them, let me explain something based on what I have just said, and this just might explain why there's some confusion as we try to weave our way through this complex subject. This is one of the applications of all of this. In these verses, he explains that God has committed both Jew and Gentile to disobedience. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem we started with in chapter 9. They were disobedient, the Jews. And that put in jeopardy and in question whether God would fulfill His promises to them and ultimately to us. So what he says now is, God committed Jew and Gentile to disobedience and then with an interesting twist he says in these verses so that he could have mercy. Look at the passage. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they, that is the Jews, are enemies for your sakes. But concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now, looking at the Jews, Paul says, there's two ways to look at this. In one sense, they have become enemies. They rejected the Messiah. That's Romans chapter 10. There's another way to look at this. Concerning election, they are beloved. That's Romans chapter 9. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers, meaning for the sake of the patriarchs to whom God gave promises. So he is saying in these verses that the rejection of Israel was so that Gentiles could be saved, that their disobedience was for your sake. Now that's one way to look at what's happened with this Jewish situation. They were disobedient. They became enemies of the gospel so that God would turn to the Gentiles and you could be saved. But he said, that isn't the whole story. So he goes on to say, they're still elect. God has still chosen them. God has still made promises to the fathers and he will fulfill those promises. So just because there has been temporary disobedience doesn't mean that God will not fulfill His promises to Israel. He goes on to explain in verse 29, for the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. God gave gifts to Israel. They were listed in the opening verses of chapter 9. We went through them. God called them, meaning He elected them, He selected them, He chose them, He called them. And once God gives a person a gift, and once God calls someone to his program, that is irrevocable. God doesn't reverse himself. He doesn't change his mind. It will stand. Now that verse, folks, is directly related to the promises God gave to the fathers, Meaning the patriarchs, meaning the Abrahamic covenant that was renewed with Isaac and Jacob. That means that God promised the patriarchs the land. He gave them gifts, like the Mosaic law and the covenants, and He will fulfill those covenants. Now, that's the primary meaning of this verse in the context of Romans 11. The other thing this verse means, because all of this goes right back to chapter 8, is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are promised eventual glorification and nothing will change that. Whom he justified, he will glorify, Paul says at the end of Romans 8. This verse, in my opinion, is one of the great proofs in all the New Testament for the doctrine of eternal security. I remind you that it is in the book of Romans that we are told in chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And in Romans chapter 11, he says the gifts of God are irrevocable. One of the gifts is eternal life, and that is irrevocable. If you have truly trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are sealed by the Spirit of God, and that is irrevocable. You are in, you are sealed, and nothing can change that. So he is saying that um, Israel rejected the Messiah. They were disobedient, but that so God could show mercy to the Gentiles. That doesn't mean he's rejected Israel. Now he says another thing. He says in verse 30, And as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they may obtain mercy. I know this gets a little complex, so let me see if I can simplify it. The point Paul is making in verses 28 to 32 is that God allowed both Jews and Gentiles to be disobedient so that he could show mercy. That's the point. Keep it in mind. In verses 28 and 29, he is saying that Israel was disobedient so that God could show mercy to the Gentiles. Now, in the next several verses, in verses 30 through 32, he is saying, and eventually the Gentiles are going to be disobedient, and he's going to show mercy back to the Jews. If you will recall, earlier in the chapter, he talked about the fact that he would show mercy on one to provoke the other to jealousy. But the point is this, and that's what I don't want you to miss. God committed both Jew and Gentile, to disobedience so that he could show mercy to all. Matter of fact, that's the conclusion. Verse 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Just underline that verse. If not in your Bible, in your brain because that's the point. God committed them all to disobedience so that he could show mercy now the jewish problem as i've chosen to call it is that they were disobedient does that mean that god isn't going to be faithful to his program to israel no it doesn't because that's only temporary and it's only partial ultimately god will save all israel god will be faithful to his program god will have mercy But here's what Paul wants us to understand in the meantime. That disobedience, which became the initial problem, which works both ways with Jews and Gentiles, was so that God could show mercy. Isn't that a cute twist? (laughs) We started out saying this, their disobedience, their rejection of the gospel, their hardening was the great problem. God turns it all around and says, No. No, their disobedience was so that I could show mercy. Their disobedience is not a problem at all for him. It's the basis on which he demonstrates just how great his mercy is. So what's the conclusion? Verses 33 to 36. This is marvelous. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Here we thought we had this great problem, the disobedience of Israel, the rejection of Israel of the gospel. And now we discover that God uses that very disobedience to show mercy to the Gentiles. He's going to use the disobedience of the Gentiles to show mercy to Israel. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. God wasn't baffled by this problem. God wasn't surprised by it. God wasn't confused by it. He used even the disobedience to show mercy. So he says, this is unexpected. Because they were disobedient, and this is the reason it was a problem for us, because they were disobedient, what we would expect is wrath and judgment. And here's the surprise (laughs) twist. (laughs) They were disobedient, all right. Nobody's questioning that. But God didn't demonstrate his wrath. He didn't execute judgment. Will you please hear me? This is incredible. He just used their disobedience to demonstrate his mercy. Isn't that incredible? And so you come to that and you say, Oh, oh the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Here we thought we had a problem. It wasn't a problem at all. God used it for his own glory. So he quotes several other passages. He says in uh, verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. He says in verse 35, Or who has first given to him? and it should be repaid to him. That's a quotation from Job 41, verse 11. He is simply saying, nobody has known the mind of the Lord. Nobody has been his counselor. Nobody has first given to him so that he then is owed something by God and God is in his debt. And he's quoting these verses from Isaiah and Job to say that. What he's saying is we came upon this problem and we simply didn't understand the divine design or the divine program or the divine purpose. We had to have it revealed to us. Unaided man cannot discover God's plan or counsel God's person. Somebody has likened this to a fly on a pillar of a huge cathedral and that fly has no comprehension of the overall design of the architect in building that cathedral. Man looks at what God is doing and he is absolutely baffled like the fly on the pillow of a cathedral. He doesn't comprehend, and he doesn't understand. And who, pray tell, would dare give God counsel? It's like a moron trying to give counsel to a heart surgeon or a brain surgeon. No, no. We stand amazed in the presence of the Nazarene. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He is sovereign. He shows mercy on whom he will show mercy, and he will harden whom he will harden. And at the same time, man has a choice in that, but none of man's wrong choices Man's disobedience, if you will, will negate or make invalid the program of God. God will, even in the midst of man's disobedience, fulfill his program. Then what is there left for us to do? We had to be told that. That had to be revealed to us. Unaided man couldn't figure that out So Paul ends the depth of these three chapters with praise He starts in verse 33 by simply exclaiming "Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God and he ends by saying in verse 36 for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever Amen, and amen, and amen. All you can do in the face of God's eternal program and God's great sovereign choice, and even in the face of man's disobedience and sin, and to see how God weaves that into His program and purpose, is to just praise God. Verse 36 says, Of Him, God is the source of all things. And through Him, God is the means of all things. And to Him, God is the end of all things. Therefore, praise be to God. He is the creator, the sustainer, and the goal. So just thank God. G. Campbell Morgan once said, when I don't understand, then I worship. We come upon this Jewish problem. And at first we don't understand the Jews have been disobedient. That means God doesn't seem to be able to fulfill his covenant, and what does that say about me? And now Paul says, oh no, all the Jews were disobedient, all right, that's because they chose to be. But God is sovereign. He will fulfill his promises, even using disobedience to show mercy, and all there's left for us to do is praise him. Oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. Now we're going to sum up just the verses we've looked at today. I'd do it like this. When the believer understands that God's solution to the Jewish problem is to ultimately save all Israel, then he will Praise God for his wisdom. If I were going to embellish that a little further, I think I'd polish it by saying, when believers understand that God's solution to the Jewish problem is ultimately to save all Israel, even though they are now disobedient, then he will just praise God for his wisdom. Let me conclude by putting it like this. The problem of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is God made promises to us, but Israel's history looks like he didn't fulfill promises he made to them. That's what I've chosen to call the Jewish problem. Why did they not Trust the Messiah. What happened? Part of the answer is God sovereignly chose to save whom He wills. That's chapter 9. Part of the answer is Israel didn't get saved because they chose not to, they were in unbelief. That's chapter 10. And part of the answer is God will ultimately save all Israel. So, the bottom line to all of this is that God is faithful. God will fulfill His promises. And that takes us right back to Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ. Nothing can prevent God's program of bringing us to glory. God will be faithful. And Israel is simply not a problem. Because all Israel will be saved, meaning God will one day fulfill all of his promises to Israel. Now, God will even use disobedience to manifest his mercy. That's the point. Romans 11, verse 32. He will even use disobedience to show how merciful he is. I want to conclude with that point because it's the point Paul concludes with in this overall discussion. But before I do, I want to point out one other thing. In the latter part of Romans chapter 11, Paul makes several pointed exhortations. In verses 18 and 20, He says things like, do not boast. That's verse 18. Don't be haughty. That's verse 20. Don't think you are wise in your own opinion. Verse 25. Don't you think you've got God all figured out when you've concluded that He isn't going to do something He said He would do? Don't be proud. Also, He says, don't fear. He says that, I mean, do fear. He says that in verse twenty. But fear. That is, don't charge God or challenge him, fear him. And the other thing he says in these verses that close out this these three chapters is to him be glory. Praise him. Praise him because he's faithful. He will fulfill his promises. And praise him, because you can't figure him out. Praise him, because he will even use disobedience to manifest his mercy. Aren't you glad? Aren't you thrilled? The question is, aren't you grateful? Because, folks, what we deserve because of our sin is condemnation and damnation, justice and judgment. But our sovereign God is a God of sovereign grace who has chosen to save us by His mercy, who have trusted in Christ. Praise God. John Bunyan wrote a famous allegory called Pilgrim's Progress. We're familiar with that. But he also wrote another one called Soul*, all one word. In that allegory, he told of a group of people in a city who rebelled against King Emmanuel. King Emmanuel besieged the city And finally, the rebels inside were unable to withstand and they were forced to surrender. They were told that they could surrender if they came out with chains on their neck and they cried when they came out, we are guilty, we are worthy of death ragged, almost starved. These rebels came out of the city with chains about their neck and as commanded, they said to King Emmanuel, we are guilty. We are worthy of death. And the king had every right to put the rebels to death. But in John Bunyan's allegory, he said, King Emmanuel, which you will recall means God with us, said to those rebels, you are pardoned. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The Jews had been disobedient. Granted, but that's not a problem because God will use disobedience to reveal His mercy and ultimately save all Israel and be faithful to His promise. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's the way I got in the program. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Father, we praise you for the depth of your wisdom, your knowledge, and your mercy. Thank you that you are merciful. Thank you that you are faithful. And that even though we fail and are fickle and turn on you, you are faithful, cannot deny yourself, and are faithful to us. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.